the world has been captivated by panic. Probably never before in the history of the modern world has there something that has been able to captivate the world and every almost every single person in the world like we have seen people captivated the past few months. If it has haven't been for the outbreak of COVID-19, the coronavirus, it was the locusts in Africa or the extreme droughts or the various other plagues that are across the earth right now. But even most notably, of course, the virus. And we need to really ask the question of whether the timing of it is important. You see, many people oftentimes have talked about when we talk about the feast days of God, when we talk about the biblical feast days he's given to us in his word, the ones that our Messiah, Jesus Christ, kept his disciples, kept Paul, the apostle kept. But the ones that the majority of Christianity doesn't keep. And I understand, you know, we've been taught that they're Jewish, they're abolished, they're things we don't need to look at. But each and every year, and I've been keeping the feast for many years now, I see the father doing things and more and more people are being captivated by his feast days now instead of the things that go around the feast days, because look, the feast days are very relevant for today. Many would want you to believe that they are all fulfilled and irrelevant. Couldn't be more far from the truth. The feast days of God are unfulfilled and very relevant. You see, 3500 years ago, around there, we have the plagues coming upon Egypt and Pharaoh. And we are basically on the timeline right before this feast, the first feast called Passover, a very famous one. This is also the feast where about 2000 years ago, our Messiah, Jesus Christ was crucified on and understanding the feast days in this season is so important to get your house in order and ready before God. The feast days of God has been given by God in order for his people to prepare to prepare because brothers and sisters, you need to understand the significance. The feast days have been given thousands of years ago. For example, when Israel came out of Egypt through the story of the Exodus, many of the feast days started falling into place and started becoming established by God for his people to keep forever is what he said. Keep them as a, a memorial forever. And why did he say keep them forever? Because God knew and understood that he would be using these feast days to speak to his people around the globe, around the world for ever. And that as long as they're on earth, he's going to be speaking to them through these feast days because there are going to be events that are going to be happening on this earth that is going to demand our attention fixed on him, on God, 
instead of simply the fears that will surround these horrible situations. And brothers and sisters, the coronavirus is simply a little birth pain. It's nothing compared to the, the, the horrible things that will come upon the earth that would inspire great fears into the deepest places of men's hearts. And if you do not get captivated by God's feast days and what they're about, instead you're captivated by the fear surrounding these worldly events, you will not have the blood on the doorpost. Because see, the part of actually getting the Yeshua, Jesus's blood on your doorpost is by actually doing what God said. That is go into your house, isolate yourself, put the blood on the doorpost. That's what that is what the Israelites were called to do um, when when God told them that. And that was when um, the, the feet from there. That's where the feast days got implemented. So the feast days are these actions of doing. It's these things that we do. It's actions, not just look, it's not just about I believe in Jesus. It's about, okay, I believe in Jesus. Now I will do what he said. And so what we're going to talk about today is what did he say we should do in this season in the midst of these events going on around us. So as a just very as a quick overview of the feast days, the very significance of them are that on uh, Passover, the first of the feast days, we have that be to be the day where Yeshua, Jesus Christ was um, slain. He was the Passover lamb who died for the sins of the world. We also have the when he was put in the grave, right? We have the whole of Israel around him at that time busy celebrating the feast of unleavened bread. Unleavened bread is connected to Passover. It's actually one big feast, if you will. And in the feast of unleavened bread, that, that was a, a week of where Israel was busy cleansing their homes from the leaven. And you remember when Jesus, he said, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. He's speaking to a people who knows what leaven means because they're keeping these feast days already. Leaven means the pride that puffs us up and then that is sin to us. So he's saying in this feast of unleavened bread, God told Israel, get this leavened, the, the puffed upness out of your homes. The bread physically removed the leaven because that's a, uh, a symbolic thing at, of doing this physically, but then reminding yourself to cleanse your heart spiritually from the pride and the sin, the hidden things that no one sees. Okay, so it's beautiful because while Israel's doing this, they're putting Yeshua, Jesus Christ in the um, uh, in the ground. They've they've killed him, but they're busy repenting, right? They're busy doing celebrating this feast, even though they don't understand the significance. But that's what he came to do. Him being um, sacrificed for our sins is the thing that cleanses our homes, right? And then thereafter, we see him resurrected on the feast of first fruits. Okay. And then we have 50 days later that countdown where he, Jesus told his um, disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit. Remember, that was the countdown to the next festival, the festival of Pentecost or Shavuot. Pentecost was not invented in the New Testament. The disciples exactly knew what they were counting down to because the 50 days 
in 50 days. It was going to be this big festival of God that he gave us. See, these things weren't foreign to them. It was only foreign to us because we've been robbed from this knowledge. And then we see um, after Pentecost or Shavuot, we have the later uh, the full feast starting, starting with the Feast of Trumpets. Okay, where in Revelation it talks about he will come back on the day of trumpets. The significance you see, it's not fulfilled yet because he's not back yet. And then after we have the Day of Atonement, that's representative of the Judgment Day. And then thereafter, we have the Day of Sukkot, the Feast of Sukkot, which is like the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's like when we get married to our Messiah, that's the end of everything. And we have the great wedding feast that our Messiah Jesus talked about. And so this is just a quick overview so you can see how beautiful and even how many of these things are unfulfilled still. And that's why we need to pay attention to them. So the significance is, is that right now we are right before Passover. The Feast of Passover is starting in April and we right now are here. And this is around the same time where the plagues would have been starting to be poured out on Egypt and what was what was the thing that needed to be done is the Israelites needed to put the blood on their doorposts. But you can't put the blood on your doorpost if you haven't cleaned out your house from sin. You know, you just like we read in Hebrews, you can't um, keep on sinning. yet try and have his blood cover you. Because that's trampling underfoot his sacrifice. So this season is a season of repentance. So you can with trustworthiness put his blood on your doorpost so you can be saved and spared. And so this is what the season begins with is, is we need to cleanse our hearts. We need to look in our homes for the sin, the leaven, get rid of the pride. And we're going to talk about some of that soon, what we can look out for. But that's what we do. And then now Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread gets the sin out of our home. But here's the thing, though. We always talk about Passover, right? If, if you've listened to my ministry, my channel, my teachings, you've heard I speak a lot about Passover. I've speak, spoken a lot about because that's where we begin is we begin with getting rid of the sin. It's so important, right? But now we're going to move on. To the feast of first fruits. That is the feast that is all about his resurrection. You see, while Passover was about getting the sin out of your life, the feast of first fruits is about keeping it out of your life. Because it's one thing to cleanse yourself, it's another to keep yourself clean. What use is there that you go each year and comes around Passover? Okay, now you wake up. Now you start cleaning your house. You start getting rid of the leaven. But then a month later, the feast is gone and over. And now you're back to your sins or you're, you've, you've moved from one sin to another. The enemy is okay if you get rid of your sin as long as you get, move on to something else that was as equally as bad. What we need to do is get clean and stay clean. And that's what we're going to talk about now. John 16, verse 7, we read the following. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. This is our Messiah speaking. Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go 
away. For if I don't go away, the helper won't come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He is saying something important. He says it is so important that I leave because the disciples were distraught by the fact that he's going to leave. But he says it's okay. Don't be distraught. Don't worry. It is good because if I go now, the Holy Spirit can be sent to you. If our Messiah did not die and get resurrected, then we would never have the um, the Holy Spirit descend. He must ascend for Holy Spirit to descend. And similarly, if we do not die and resurrect, we don't get the Holy Spirit. You see, he died and got resurrected so the Holy Spirit can be sent from him. But we need to die and resurrect so the Holy Spirit can be received by us. And what do I mean by that? Baptism is that very tool that God has given us to die. That is to enter the water and come out of the water. That is to resurrect. And now the Holy Spirit comes upon us. That's why the Holy Spirit came upon our Messiah, Jesus, when he was baptized. He got baptized, came out of the water, and we hear about the dove coming to rest upon him. That's exactly what happens with us. So we die to ourselves, our lives, or we pick up our cross, so as to say, and follow him. We leave everything behind to be a living sacrifice for him. When we have done these things, Holy Spirit has a vessel he can come to fall on and dwell in and move powerfully on. The Holy Spirit does not work through people who have their one foot in their own kingdom and another foot in his. You need to get out of the boat onto the water like Peter did with both feet and your eyes fixed on your Messiah. And when you have that done, you will be able to stand even though it's water, even though it seems impossible, even though it seems like it's not something you could do because it isn't. You can't do it alone. When did Peter start sinking? When he took his eyes off of Yeshua, when you take your eyes off of Yeshua, off of Jesus, and then you start sinking because you're trying to do it alone then. And then you start getting distracted by the world around you. Coronavirus and stock markets crashing and whatever else you're losing your job and all these these waves are around you. But you you're sinking in fear only because you're looking at the waves and not at him. What happened in any other story? We have him and his disciples on that boat and he is sleeping and there's a storm. It's crazy how he's sleeping in the middle of a storm, rocking that boat like crazy. Right. And what does his disciples do? They come and wake him and say, what are we going to do? We're going to die. And, you know, and, and he's like, what are you? What are you doing? Why do you have so much unbelief? And he just waved his hand and and the storm clouds just calm down and the waves just calm down and everything's just calm around them. And that's what he does in our lives. As long as we're having our eyes fixed on him. You see, they were again, they were looking at all these storm waves around them. They were looking at all these mountains and in their lives. Just just calm down, have faith. You see, our Messiah had so much faith himself that he slept right through that storm. He would have probably slept right through it even. Um, if they didn't wake him, right? 
And so we need to enter that peaceful place of comfort where we can sleep right through that storm and nothing would wake us because we have trust in him. So whatever storm you're going through, whatever worries you have, sleep right through it because you have the peace of God on you. Don't let the enemy put fear on you. Have, don't be of little faith. Has he not delivered you before? Will he not do so again? Of course he will. Now you do your part. We're doing our part. We're going to be repenting and keeping ourselves clean. And then he's going to carry us. Man. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be afraid. He's with us. Brothers and sisters, I have no fear. I have no... My mindset has not changed any bit from three months or six months ago when the stock market was up there and everything was still fine, whatever. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change my emotional disposition because I'm not dictated by stock markets. So why are, why are you? Our Messiah is not. Why are you? Why are you afraid of the economy? Why are you afraid of a virus? Why, are you still living for yourself? Because if you are, yeah, you ought to be afraid because your stuff is in danger. Your life is in danger. But if your life is not your own, it's not your life anymore. So how could it be in danger? You see, you need to die to yourself, live for his kingdom, and then danger can't come near you because you're not in this world. You're in the next kingdom already. You're you're living in a kingdom and not of this world. That's why he said, I am a king, but I'm not a king of this world. Remember, he told, I believe, Pilate. And that's what he means. And that's how he could go through his in, uh, Jesus could go through the incredible tribulation he went through. is because he always knew that he was not of this world. Right. So we need to remember that. And so, brothers and sisters, the Feast of First Fruits is so important because if it does not happen, if it is not uh, something that if the resurrection never happened, we don't have Holy Spirit. You see, he could have died for our sins. Yes, but it is it is his resurrection that was necessary for his Holy Spirit to come. He said, I have to go so the Holy Spirit can come. OK, so. If he if, if first fruits, the resurrection does not happen. Pentecost does not happen because Holy Spirit is not sent. And because Pentecost does not happen. Now we have trumpets not happening either because he cannot come back because he's not going to have a bride to come back to without the Holy Spirit who is edifying and preparing her for that bridegroom Jesus coming back for her. So there would be no Feast of Trumpets. He would not be coming back. And because he's not coming back, we would have no wedding ceremony because he would not have a bride to come back for and have a wedding with. So we have no Sukkot either. So if the Holy Spirit is not here, if we don't understand first fruits, nothing else matters. Like nothing else happens. Nothing else goes down except one thing. The Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, that feast day, that one that points to the judgment day where God will judge us, judge the world, basically. That is happening regardless of anything, because that is set in stone. And yes, of course, the other feast days are set in stone, but they wouldn't have been if it wasn't for first fruits, if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit. 
So you understand that the only thing, the bit, well, the biggest thing, let me say, to really help us to walk like our Messiah, to be equally yoked to him, to be able to marry him one day, to be able to be that bride he's coming back for one day, is to have the Holy Spirit that came through his resurrection. Because the Holy Spirit makes us more like him. Brothers and sisters, you can have his sacrifice for you. But if you do not change your life and start walking more like him, right? I'm not talking about being saved by works. But what I'm talking about is if we if we continue in sin, just like we did before we met him, we can't say that we are saved because we need to start repenting, right? Our lives start changing and that only happens by the Holy Spirit in us that changes us. He says in Hebrews 10 verse 16, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. You see now God's law is going to be written on our heart. How? By the Holy Spirit. You see this law. Why is it written on the heart? Because there is a circumcision, a cut in the heart that has taken place. And that cut in the heart is literally his law being etched into our hearts. That is what the circumcision of the heart is. His law is etched deep into our hearts. And now it changes our nature where it is now becoming so natural to us to start walking his law out because it is etched into our flesh, into our heart. It has become our new nature. That's why he says, I am taking out that heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. You see, I'm taking out that heart of stone because the law was previously written only on stone at Mount Sinai. Okay. And that was good and well, but the people couldn't keep it because their hearts were still unchanged. They were still in their old nature and their old man. They were not resurrected with him yet. and They hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. And so the law wasn't written on their hearts yet. It was just written. It was just on this external thing, this this stone which they could gaze upon, but it, they were not changed to be able to actually do it. So there was nothing wrong with the law. It was only the only thing that was wrong was the fact that we were disobedient and sinners and unable to keep it. But now that beautiful law that the psalmist in 119 says is holy, righteous, good. Oh, so like honey to me is what he said, right? It's not abolished, right? But and that law is now written on our hearts. The same laws that were on stone, not a different law, by the way, the same one written because that's the only law in Jeremiah 31 verse 31. He also says the same thing. I'm going to write my Torah, my law on your heart. When Jeremiah was writing that Jeremiah, the prophet, he was referring to the Torah, the law that everyone knew was the law. There was no other law he was talking about that was going to come one day. No, the same law is written on our heart and our heart will now be inclined to want to keep it and is now able, equipped to keep it. And also remember that when the law was written simply on the stone at Mount Sinai, before it was written on their hearts, we have that them trying to keep it without the same empowerment of Holy Spirit that we have today. 
That's big. It's huge. Today, we are we are able to keep it with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit because we are now now after that is post Acts 2 where the Holy Spirit was poured out. And what happened in Acts 2? Holy Spirit is poured out and then Peter gets up there and he preaches. And what what does the scripture say happened? They were cut to the heart. You see, they were circumcised, cut in the heart. And now they and then they said, we repent. We are sorry. We want to keep this. You see, now they were able and they were willing and capable of keeping his law. But it actually goes even much deeper than this, because this law that was previously on stone now on our heart, that's good and all that. Right. But now we are also not just going to be judged by based off of a law written on stone. That is like letters on a page. Right. We are going to be judged even more harshly by the law on our hearts. Because previously it was a stone that testified against us. Now it is our hearts, our very own hearts, our own convictions, our own um, uh, uh, knowing of what's right and wrong, our own uh, the question of why you did or did not keep a law because you can obey a law, but still be guilty of breaking it. And you're like, wait, well, 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 what PD? What are you saying? You see, you can be obedient to a law and still be disobedient to it at the same time, because you can obey the written code, but be disobedient in the reason you did it. I can go and feed the poor. I can go and look after widows and orphans and start orphanages and I can donate all my money to any good place. But if I do it to be seen, if I do it because I want some honor on this world or whatever, I, I, you know, for example, like Yeshua said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Right. That's what he's meant there. For example, then it's I'm breaking the law at the same time that I'm saying I'm trying to keep it. I'm actually guilty. See, I'm not just obeying some written code. I am actually supposed to obey the convictions of my heart, which is that going to be that voice, that Holy Spirit that comes and says, Petey, I told you to give that money to this or that thing, but I want you to not tell anyone or publish it. I want you to be quiet about it because I don't want you to seek honor in this world for it. You see now what I'm getting at, for example, now there is that thing. And if I disobey that Holy Spirit conviction, I will stand before God guilty as if I never gave away a penny. You see, brothers and sisters, this is why our Messiah said, you have heard it once said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, if you look at a woman of lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. He was not adding to the law. He was saying your heart is going to be the thing that testifies against you before God. And if your heart is wicked, even though you outwardly do good things, you're wicked before God. And so this is a this higher standard of the new covenant. This is the standard of walking like Jesus did. See, it's not enough to just be obedient to some written code, to some law and stone. 
What he calls us to is to be obedient to what is in our hearts, what his Holy Spirit convicts us by on top of because on top of the the actual law that's been written there, because, of course, this is all within the framework of the law written on our heart, that physical Torah law that God gave. But why do we keep it? Why don't we keep it? What's going on in the heart? That's what we need to be looking at very carefully in light of his coming and in light of the fact that he got resurrected because he got resurrected for us to be able to walk in such a holy place. And brothers and sisters, we have all the tools we have. Everything we need is Holy Spirit and everything what we need is here. We have it. But the question is, is are you inclining your ear towards him? Or are you not? Matthew 5 verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's really I love what he said here. Jesus talked and he said the commandments. And by the way, when he talks about the commandments, do not relax one of the least of these. He's talking about the Torah and the prophets. And if you want to know that, just read early in Matthew five and you'll see he's very clearly not talking about some abstract thing here. He's talking about the written Torah and prophets, the only commandments that were around when he was standing and saying these very words. Okay, that's all he could have referenced. And he's saying to those things. Yes, I did not abolish it. I came to walk it out. I came to fulfill it. I came to be it so you can see how I walk so you can imitate me. And then he says, if you relax one of the least of them, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. It's funny. It's, it's he's, he's saying you will be in the kingdom, but you're going to be least in it. So this is not about a salvation because thing, because we know we're saved by faith. But if we relax his commandments, even the least of them, we will be least in his kingdom. We'll enter through the gate, but we'll go into the gutter. <laughs> I'm kidding. I don't know if there are gutters in heaven, but the point is, is we will be least. And I don't know what that looks like, but I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to get there and find that out because heaven is an eternal place, brothers and sisters. The, the weight of that just needs to hit us like heaven is an eternal place. The kingdom of God is an eternal place. It's not like here where you can get a second or third chance. We need to be so careful that we do not relax the least even of his commandments. You want to say his Sabbath is abolished. My Bible and my own Messiah said you'll be least in the heavens, not because of what I say, not because I'm the one who's going to judge you because I'm, I can't. But it says that you will be. He says these words will testify. Do you understand? That if Jesus, this is this is guys, just just listen. If God is going to go and let people who who, who taught that his commandments are abolished, if God is going to let them be great in the kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven, God is going to be a liar and against his own word. Do you understand the seriousness of that? It means that God would need to lie. He need to he needs to sin to get you great in the heavens. 
If you are one who teaches against his commandments, if you are one who teaches their least. That's what the Bible says very clear. And so he says you'll be least. But if you teach them and if you do them, you'll be called great. You'll be saved and you'll be great. You will dine with me. You will be with me like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the disciples. You know, the disciples said you will be we're on those 12 thrones. Why? Because they did and taught his commandments forever. Do you understand that if you think that Paul, the apostle is teaching you to break God's law, to not keep his feast days or his Sabbath or any of these things that Paul will be called least in the kingdom of heaven and everyone he taught will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. If they follow what he taught. Unless he didn't teach that and you're totally misreading what he is saying and our Messiah's words, which is above everyone else is true. And then in the next verse, he says something quite crazy. He says, and unless your righteousness, that means your righteous works exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But these were guys who kept it, man. They, they, they loved his law, right? That's what they said. At least the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the scholars of the day, but their hearts were wicked. You see, they will be judged not just by a law written on stone, but their hearts. That's why our Messiah went and he started saying, what is going on in your heart? And brothers and sisters, now I want to talk about some of those heart matters, the things that are that Jesus spoke about, because these are going to be the things that will bring you before God, drag you into his courts and accuse you before God. That is your own heart. Your own heart is the accuser if you are guilty. Because the law is now in your heart and the law is the, the law is the thing that will accuse you if you are guilty. Now, listen, if you are saved, if you have because you're saved by faith, if you are saved by him, you, you have accepted him as your Messiah. You are in the heaven, the kingdom. You are in heaven. You are in that place. And that is set in stone. If you have truly given your life to him and accepted him as your savior, you are saved. That is what he does for us, right? That is it. No buts to that. And I'm not talking about that right now. We will, however, be judged based off of our work still, even if we are saved, because that's how you can be great and least in the kingdoms. We just read it in Matthew five based off what your works were, where you're obedient or not, you will be least or greatest in his kingdom of heaven. So his blood saves us and makes us clean before the father to be able to enter his presence. But his blood doesn't necessarily guarantee us the highest place in heaven at his table to sit with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Okay, that's the difference. That's going to be up to whether we are actually upright, pure in heart, whether we are actually saying, Lord, I want to be holy. God, I don't care the cost. God, I want to be like Yeshua, whatever. And and brothers, this is not by our own striving for righteousness. This is by the righteousness imputed to us. Number one, and then number two, by obeying the Holy Spirit's nudges and and voice convictions, because he says he came to convict us of sin, righteousness and judgment. 
He came to convict us and say, when he says, this is wrong, Petey, stop doing that. I'm like, okay, Father, oh, that's wrong. Okay, Lord, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive me, Lord. Lord, Lord, I am, I am and you repent. And you say, like, Father, I'm not going to do that anymore. Lord, I'm turning from that. Lord, I thank you so much for showing me, Lord. And I ask him often, Father, just show me, God, just show me, Lord, what, what is there in my life, Lord, that's, that's, that's unclean. And what is there that would keep me from keep being close when I, to you when I get to your kingdom? Right? That's what our heart needs to be. And then we obey that conviction. Brothers and sisters, there are people who are believers who do not obey those convictions. And they will be saved, but they may be least. And there are people who are believers who will obey those convictions, who will obey, who will do things for the right reasons. And God, and when their hearts are opened before God on Judgment Day, God will say, Well done. My faithful servant, I have entrusted you with these things and you have been faithful. Come and enter the reign of the heavens. I have given you this place. You see, my sisters, these are realities that will occur. And you want to hear it from me before you figure it out when it's too late. So look at let's look at what he said. Our Messiah he said, Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whatever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Brothers and sisters, this is about keeping the leaven, that pride out of your heart. How can you say you love God, but in the same breath that you have in your lungs, say, I hate my brother or speak against your brother in terms from anger or, 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 or say, tell your brother, you're a fool, you're an idiot, you know, or, or whatever words like this. The Bible, Yeshua, he said, Jesus, he said himself, if you do these things, you are liable to hellfire. Doesn't mean that if you did it, that you will inherit hellfire. No, not necessarily. If you have his blood, no, but he's trying to make the point of how serious this is. So because if you understand that every time I call my brother a fool, I am committing murder in God's eyes and I am worthy of being thrown into hell forever and being destroyed there. Maybe we should think twice about what we say. Because then we're, we love to point the finger at the murderers, the adulterers and those who don't keep the Sabbath. But we left and right call those who don't keep his commandments fools. And, and then we are no better than they are. 2 Timothy 2 verse 24. He says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness so that God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. He says you need to patiently endure evil when they're coming against you, your enemies, they're doing evil things against you. Endure it patiently. And when your opponents come and speak against you, correct them with gentleness, not slamming them over the head with that 
stone of commandments. No, gentle correction like the Holy Spirit did for you. Because how else will they listen? So they may, may by God's grace be afforded repentance. Right? But sisters, here's the thing. Listen, this is so important. Okay, like every time on Facebook or in real life or wherever you are on YouTube in the comment section or, or, or wherever you are in church outside of it, if, if someone comes and as an opponent and, and speaks against your theology or against even God before you or, or whatever it is, something like that, what God is doing is he's looking He's looking, he's he's observing you. He's looking, okay, how are you going to handle this? What are you going to say? Are you going to say to this person the truth? That's good, right? Of course, that's often the thing we can do easy is we're going to tell them the truth. But God is also looking at something very relevant and important. He is looking at how are you going to communicate that truth? How are you going to tell them? Are you going to do so in gentleness and patience, loving kindness out of your absolute love for them, answering them as a person who's a son and loved by God? Or are you going to do so because you want to show them how right you are, because you want to show them how how much knowledge you have, you want to show them how how much pride you have and oh, how much pride do we have? See, brothers and sisters, the problem is, is you can speak excellent truth to everyone around you. But if you do so in a way displeasing to God, it may as well have been that you spoke a lie. Because if you speak truth in a manner that is not in accordance with what truth should be communicated by, and that is love, then no one would want to hear a word of what you have to say. In fact, if you communicate truth with hatred, the only other thing outside of love, you will actually turn them away from the truth. And you will actually do the work of the enemy while you thought you were working for God. You will be turning people away from the truth because you communicated the truth without love. You say, oh, well, 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 but Jesus didn't speak in love to the Pharisees. I tell you, he did. There is a place and a time for everything, a time to speak in this way and a time to speak in that. And yes, he did speak more harshly to some Pharisees, certain ones who came against him. But he did so still with the undertones of love. I bet you, I promise you that when you go back, if you could have stood there right next to him while he was telling them and rebuking them of their sins, even when he did so more harshly, you would have been able to hear his voice creak with love. You would have been able to see the tears in his eyes from love for them while he was speaking these words to them. You see, brothers and sisters, it's easy to twist and think because we just see the words on a page. It's easy to think, oh, yes, I can just scream and yell at people and express my hatred towards them, even though I do it in truth. And that's okay. If you don't cry while telling your enemy, 
if you don't cry in your heart and then if you don't have tears in your eyes, if you're not, if you don't have that, that, that emotional state of your heart breaking and love for them, you have no business coming and speaking harshly against them. You need to come to them with a heart of love. And if you don't, you should rather keep quiet. You will spare yourself more on Judgment Day that way. But ask the father to break your heart for his people in love so you can come in love to them. So that when you then come before God, he can tell you, yeah, bro, you don't only speak my truth, but you spoke it with love. And that's what I called you to do. Matthew 5, verse 38, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I said, you do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You see that he is talking about a very popular idiom here. The eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And that has been misunderstood oftentimes. It doesn't mean if someone takes out your eye, you need to take out their eye too. And that's not what it says. It actually talks about retribution. It means, but in terms of payment. So in other words, if if um, I if someone um, accidentally um, broke something that I own or accidentally did something that do, did damage to something I own or something like that, then that person is obligated to pay for it. They're obligated to, you know, if someone throws over my laptop and it breaks and they they are obligated to reimburse me for that, right? And that's what it means. An eye for an eye, truth, tooth for tooth. But he says, you've heard that said, but I'm telling you even something greater now, something greater, something with more love. And he says, don't resist the one who is evil. If he slaps you on your left cheek, turn to him the other also. He's saying if someone were to push over that laptop off the table from you and he did it even with evil intent, he wanted to break your computer. He says, don't resist him. Let him do it. Actually, tell him, here's my phone. Break my phone too. tell him. Here's my cloak. Take it off. Take it. Take what you want. Do what you want. It's, it's OK. And in fact, he says it. He says, if anyone will sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. You see, he's and he goes on. It's he's saying you need to be the humble of the earth, the meek of the earth, the salt of the earth, because brothers and sisters, I promise you that if someone did that to you, but your response is not what they expect. Your response is different. You see, they're going to expect you to respond in anger and hatred and call him a fool and an idiot and thereby sin by those things. But if you instead respond and you say, you know what? Take take this, do this, go further, do more damage. It's OK. I, it's not going to change the way I treat you, the way that I will love you. That's what Messiah did. That's what Jesus did. He said, Yes, you're, you're, you're slapping me now. Yes, you're putting a nail into this hand now. Oh, yes, you please nail this one in too. Oh, yes, please continue doing so. That's the heart he had. And then he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. They don't understand what they're doing. And isn't that the very thing that draws you to God? Isn't it the kindness, the sacrifice, the fact that he went above and beyond, the fact that he continued going and saying, continue inflicting harm upon me as long as you want. It's OK. Isn't that the thing that drew you to him? 
his love for you, the fact that he died for you while you were still a sinner. He didn't die for you only after you repented. He didn't die for you only after you said you're sorry. He died before it. And that caused you to repent. And in the same way, you're treating of this other person in such kindness where you're turning the other cheek. That will be the thing that causes them to repent too. That causes them to ask the question, why are you responding this way? Because no one in this world would do that. And you can say, yes, because I am not of this world. I am not of this kingdom. I am of a kingdom far higher and greater. A kingdom of love, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the one true God. Matthew 5 verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. This is very famous. When he says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. You know, what what movies are you watching? What what are you when there's a lady who walks down the road? Man, what are you doing with your eyes? Have you made a covenant with them? Have you said, I'm not going to do that. I am not going to commit lust in my heart, adultery in the heart, fornication in the heart, because you can do fornication in the heart, too. If you if you're not married to someone, but you lust after them, you're committing fornication. You know, brothers and sisters, what do we, we need to audit ourselves in these things? And when we read on, he says, Matthew 5, 31, it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. I tell you, I call you to a higher standard that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Do you still think of marriage and do you still teach your children to think of marriage as something that will always have a emergency exit, a backup plan called divorce? You see, brothers and sisters, when I entered marriage of Christina, there was no uh, there is no such thing in my vocabulary as the word divorce. There's no such thing in my dictionary. I don't even know what it means because it is not something that I will ever even remotely consider no matter what. Is that how you think of these things? Because are you thinking of it in the way that God designed it? Marriage to be eternal as long as you live, you know, between one man and one woman. Is that how you're thinking of these things? Or are you still thinking of things in light of what was Oh, it was okay. God allowed certificates of divorce with Moses. Yes, because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not so from the beginning. He did it simply because of the sin in your hearts, because of your uncircumcised hearts, because of the fact that you didn't have the Holy Spirit. But now that you do, what are you doing with that? How do you treat your wife? How do you treat your husband? Because this is on top of all this, you're supposed to treat them in a way that they would never even be able to think of that word of divorce. That's how we are supposed to love each other. We're supposed to love our wives the way that Christ loved the church to die for her. We are supposed to love our husbands the way we are supposed to love Christ as the body of Christ. That is to be a living sacrifice for him. That is what we are to do, how we are to live. Do you live with a circumcised heart or are you still living in the uncircumcision of of the ancestors? He calls you to circumcision. Galatians 5 verse 22. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these there is no law. See, there's people who say, oh, I keep the law. I keep God's law. I don't commit adultery. I don't do any of these things. But they have no gentleness. They have no patience. They have no self-control. They have no kindness. They have none of these aspects. They don't have true love. But then you don't keep the law because you don't have the fruits of the spirit. If you don't have if you're walking in the fruits of the flesh, you're breaking the law anyway. You, You can't say I keep the law, but my fruit is wicked. That is what the Pharisees did. And Yeshua said, if your righteousness don't exceed theirs, you won't enter kingdom. Because you can't be of an uncircumcised heart and say, I believe you, Messiah. You can't say, I, 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 believe, in, I believe in God and I'm his disciple, but you act like the world does. You don't have self-control, gentleness, kindness, patience. Brothers, sisters, clean out your house. Clean out your heart. Because you need his blood on your doorpost, man. And if, if your heart is wicked, how can you put his blood there? Make your heart clean so you have a clean doorpost so that you can put his blood there. So we can see that these things, you know, patience, gentleness, kindness, I, they, they weren't directly written in the law like that. But God calls us to a greater responsibility than the mere written code. He calls us to walk in that 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 Holy Spirit fruit that will qualify us before God. And he says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, he talks about how how why we are to be like this, because you could say, well, well, why do I go? Oh, God, why do I need to do this? And he says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. See, brothers and sisters, you are always valuable to God because he created you. Why would he create something that's not valuable and that doesn't have that has no value? And he died for you, showing that he does value you. But before you did not walk in a way that was an example of that value. But now, now that you know, you understand his sacrifice, you understand what he did, you understand that he bought you with a price of his own life. Now you have value, you understand it, and now you have a responsibility to walk that value out by actually walking like he did in holiness as a child of the king. If you're a uh, he's the king, you're like a prince. And if you're of that kingdom, he's going to expect you to act in accordance to the to keep the family name high. Right. That's what God calls us to do. Keep the family name high. Be responsible. You see, you were purchased, your body, your life, your thoughts, your actions, what you produce, your produce, your life, your 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 output, your work. Everything is not your own. He says you're bought with a price. Nothing of it belongs to you anymore. All of it has to be submitted unto God for him to have a say in it. And yes, he's going to let you rejoice and he's going to let you be blessed by the things that come from it in your life. But it belongs to him. And if it belongs to him, you don't have a right to be angry. You don't have a right to be have unforgiveness. You don't have a right to to call your brother a fool or to look at a woman of lust or to 
or to uh, do any of these things. You have no right to do so because your life was bought with a price. But if you say, I don't want my life to be bought with a price and you continue to do these things by that, then that's fine. He will get rid of you, but then you won't know him, but then you'll be divorced from him. So now that you understand you were bought with a price, he has taken you into his sheepfold. He has taken you into his protection. Now act like his anointed so that he can work through you as his anointed because he has called you with a great calling into a royal priesthood to bear great fruit. And so, brothers and sisters, I'm speaking to all of these things and you may be like, oh, well, Petey, when are you going to teach us about the feast? Listen, this is the teaching about the feast, because the way that you get clean is by auditing your heart and keeping these things in check, circumcising your heart before God. And now you can be worthy of him. Now you can be found clean when he comes, when the death angel comes by your house. When he he looks and maybe one day when you come before him, we need to order our hearts to be unleavened and circumcised. And so now I would like to read Leviticus regarding the Feast of First Fruits, because there's an amazing, very real applicable commandment regarding this feast that I would like you to really consider doing this year. We're going to read it here. Leviticus 23 verse 10. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall. Number one, bring the sheaf of first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall. Offer a lamb, a male lamb, a year old without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. And then number three, a grain offering with which shall be two tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And then a drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. And now you may think, look at these and listen to what I just Read in Leviticus, and, and I know Leviticus can be seen as a boring and a irrelevant sometimes book, even. But you then have failed to see that the full gospel message has just been read to you. And you may be like, What? How did that happen? No, but if you actually really read what I just told you, you'll see. That there is incredible beauty in this message. He is talking about various elements to be offered to God. You see, first fruits is the feast in the beginning of the year, a harvest festival. So this means that basically it would happen around the time when people would have their first harvests, right? And when you have your harvest, God says, You need to now, I want you to make an offering. I need you to make a sacrifice. I need you to give something up that is valuable to you. Something of your produce. Remember, I said nothing is your own, not your thoughts, your life, your actions, your anything, even your produce, your output, what you work, your work and all that. It's all supposed to be God's. And so now he's saying, I want you to prove it to me. I want you to prove to me that you actually trust me 
that, that I am the one who provides, that you trust that I am the one who has blessed you. I want to, you to be reminded of the fact that I'm the one who allowed you to be able to have any kind of produce in your life. If you have money that you've been able to work for, you need to be reminded and understand that that has come from no employer alone. That has come from no weird random circumstance, but that has come from purely God's blessing. Every single dollar in your bank account is from God and his uh, his blessings. And this is what he's telling you. He says even Exodus verse 22 verse 29. It's another example we can read. He says, you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. Even the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You know, it's beautiful. He's even saying when you have a firstborn, he wants you to come and dedicate that child to him. You know, the, the first harvest thing, the first uh, money that you brought in this year. You may not be a farmer, but it's the same principle. If you brought in money this year, the first um, money that you brought in, bring a portion of that and give it to God. Give it as a gift offering to him. If you have a firstborn child, give it to God. And you may be like, well, that's so weird. Why? 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 Because God did that for you first. Has he not? John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. God gave us in the beginning. He gave us. That was the very first thing he did. Before you were even made, he gave you something. And that is Jesus, because he is the word that became flesh. He was in the beginning. He was with God. He was God. That is who he was. He was given in the beginning. And then it says, and all things were made through him. That means that your life was a gift from God. And that gift only came by because of how he gave us Jesus, because we were made through him. We were made from him. That's what it says in John 1 verse 3. Right. So that's so God gave. And then we even read in Genesis one verse two, the earth was without form and void and darkness over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water in the beginning. Before we even had a thought in our minds, God gave us the spirit. God gave us his son. He gave us life. He gave us the spirit. He gave us creation. He gave us breath in our lungs. He gives us breath every day. He gives us our job. He gives us our life. He gives us our children. He gives us our finances. He gives us our house. He gives us our food. He gives us everything he gives. This is who he is. And now he says, I made you in my image. I made you to be like me. I want you to act like me. I want you to be like Jesus. I want you to walk like I did. That was the example. He came to walk so we can see how he walks, so we can walk like he did. That's why he says, whoever says he abides in him and does not walk like he does is a liar. So we have to walk like him. And he says now, because you understand that I, God, I have always been giving. And I have given for my first fruits. I have given my firstborn son even. I want you to do the same. I want you to give the first fruits because he Jesus is the first fruits. 
He is the first fruit of God. He is God's firstborn son. He is what God gave us. This is the first one, child of God that God gave. He is that. And this is what God says. Now you do the same. I need you to make a sacrifice too. And that's what this first fruit is about. We have in first fruits has being resurrected. And then we know, of course, the gift that came from that resurrection of Jesus was the Holy Spirit. That's another gift from God. All of this calls, it's a gift, 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 gift from God. And he says, no, I want you to give a gift of your first fruits, the most valuable of the valuable. He goes on and he says in Leviticus, you know, uh, he says the first fruits of your harvest. And he says a male lamb spotless, right? That's a picture of Jesus. That's a picture of he is the lamb of God that died for our sins. You see, he's all over this. A male lamb is actually a picture of the gospel message of him coming to die for us. And then thereafter, he says he wants us to give a grain offering to fine flour mixed with oil. Now, what is the fine flour mixed with oil about? Well, the oil, that one is easy, right? Because we know the virgins with their oil and their lamps and that oil needs to burn continuously. And that oil is the Holy Spirit that we need to have. Okay, so we have the oil is the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, I need you to give an offering of the oil mixed with fine flour. And we know that when we mix oil with fine flour, it makes basically something very much like unleavened bread. And who is unleavened bread? Yeshua, Jesus is that very word I was given in the beginning. He is our unleavened bread who he says, eat of me, right? He's the manna. And you'll never go hungry again. Okay. So we see the oil. That's the oil and with the fine flour. So the oil is Holy Spirit. And that spirit, that oil is mixed with the fine flour. That is the truth. The fine flour is the, the truth. And we have now the spirit mixing with the truth. And all this makes up the person of Jesus. You see, you need to have the oil in your life mixed with the with with the, the fine flour, the truth, the spirit mixed with the truth. You need to have a life full of the Holy Spirit and power, miracles, works, you know, of the spirit, you know, his fruits of the spirit, gentleness, love, kindness, like we all discuss now. You need to walk in spiritual giftings like he's gifted you and he desires you to walk in. And then you need to walk in obedience to his truth. You need to have his truth as well. You know, the truth of his commandments, because these things all work together. If you just have the oil, but you don't have any fine flour. You only have half the picture. If you just have the fine flour, the truth, but you don't have the oil, the spirit, you, you're missing half the picture. You see, brothers and sisters. So he's saying, I want you, and this is what your life is supposed to have, the spirit and the truth. You're supposed to be a living sacrifice. Remember what he says? Be a living sacrifice. A life is not that's not your own anymore. And that life has to have the spirit and the truth to be a sweet, pleasing aroma to our father when we sacrifice that to him. So when we talk about giving right in this context, of course, it means that giving of your life and everything we discuss with that. And he also very specifically, though, does speak about a financial giving. He speaks about giving from the first fruit of your harvest back then. Right. That's equated for today. You can call that a 
a financial giving. That's giving something of your um, back then it was your produce today. It is your money. Okay. Um, we are not all farmers. So for us, it's practical in terms of your first fruits in terms of what you've brought in for the year. And you need to take a good offering of that and give it to the father. And you might ask, well, why, Petey? Why, why financially? Why? Well, of course, he says we should. So that's why. But I believe there's reason for that. He he doesn't want us to be ruled by money. He do, He wants us to understand that that this world is temporary. He wants us to put our mind on the things above and not beneath to build a treasure from for above and not a treasure on earth where moth and rust will destroy. He doesn't want us to be ruled by it, by money, but to be greedy, etc. Right. That's one of the first things, because you see, giving financially is really probably one of the easiest ways to practically make a sacrifice, something that's really an offering, something that's really going to cost us something to God, just like he gave, 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 like we discussed to us. And then also what it does, though, is something I think very relevant for today with the financial markets, uh, coronavirus, uncertainties, etc. I know what everyone is thinking while I'm talking about these things. You're thinking, oh, no, there's all so much uncertainty and how I don't know if I should give because, you know, we don't know what the future holds. Brothers and sisters, why do you think God wants us to give the first fruits of our labors for the year? Of course, well, part of that reason is, is because in the beginning of a year, we don't know how the year has gone yet. We don't know how it's going to go. We don't know if it's going to be a good year or a bad year. By the end of the year, you'll know, oh, this was a good year. We had good business, right? Or it wasn't. You, you don't know. There's there's a, a fear of the unknown, right? That's just natural for, for us to have. But we're not supposed to live in fear. We're not supposed to live by fear. And so he is saying, are you going to trust me even in trying times? Are you going to trust me with your first offering, your the first the first fruits of your labors for the year, even though you don't know what the end of the year is going to yield? Are you going to give me something in the beginning? It's easy to give something at the end, just cut off the, the bottom of the you know profits and give it to God. That's easy. But what about the first month? of your labors. You don't know how the year is going to be yet, but if you take that, a portion of that and give it to God, how pleasing is it? How pleasing is it to him to do that? Because then you're doing what he did for you. He took his firstborn, he took his only son, Jesus, and he gave him for you. Right? That's what he did. And so he wants us. He, he trusts. He trusted us to accept the sacrifice of himself. He, he trusted us to actually accept what he has given us, accept that gift. That's a lot of trust that he had for us, right? Because if no one accepted Jesus, he would have died for nothing. But he trusted us with that to accept him, to make that sacrifice worthy. And today we need to trust God. That's what he asks. He asks of us. Trust me. And see how I make your sacrifice worth it. See how I make you prosper. See how I accept your sacrifice just like you accepted mine. Just like you accepted Jesus, Yeshua the Messiah. 
savior of the world. So God will accept your sacrifice when you are obedient back to him. And oh, how he will bless us when we do that. Oh, and by the way, brothers and sisters, if you live in the US, at least it's time for the census and the census that we are all getting in the mail now is actually instructed for us to be a marker as well. Believe it or not, God actually calls us to make an offering when there's a census put out. In Exodus 30 verse 12, it says, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. See, brothers and sisters, we, when we are numbered, like in the, with a census, this is a picture of how God tells us, I numbered you. I thought of you individually. I numbered you. I count the cost when I went to die for your sins and I did it anyway. And when God gave his firstborn, they were literally numbering the people because Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem to register in the census. This is amazing. As Jesus, the savior of the world, the gift from God was born. They were counting the people in Bethlehem and all the known world. And then because of this revelation that we have, this thankfulness, we now give to God like in commanded. He said, give a ransom, give an offering, give something so that you are numbered to be part of those who are not struck with a plague. You see, then you're numbered among those who are safe when you give an offering. And the timing is just impeccable with all of this. And I know people would say, oh, PD, this is for Israel. You're not in Israel. You don't have to worry about the census and giving an offering. I still believe that the same spiritual significance is going on today. There is no um, coincidence that we are getting the census mails in the mail today. We are getting them in this time because God is saying you are being numbered. You are being numbered. You are being numbered. It's a prophetic thing that is happening. You are being numbered. Will you count the cost like I did when I gave my son for you? Will you count the cost and give for me and trust me? And he says in Exodus 30 verse 12, so that no plague will come among you. There are many plagues around us today, brothers and sisters. I don't know about you, but I think this is a promise that I could really use. We could all really use is to be numbered for God. Because see, brothers and sisters, there's one last offering that has to be made at the first fruits offering, like we read in Leviticus, and that is the drink offering of wine. Now, you may wonder, well, why wine? Of course, wine represents the blood, his blood that was shed for us. But also at the wine, there was a wedding of Cana. And at that wedding, there was wine. Do you remember? And Yeshua had to do the miracle because there was only water and there was no wine left. And he commanded his servants to go and fill those jars with water. And they filled it. And when those jars hit the brim with water, a miracle happened. It turned into wine and there was great wine. And the, the, they, the, the host drank of it and said, this is the best 
I have ever tasted. You've said the base for lost. You see, brothers and sisters, that water jar filled up is Holy Spirit. You see, when the Holy Spirit, who is the water, because remember when he was struck in his side, Yeshua, he was struck in his side, blood and water came out. The water represents the spirit. The blood represents the remission of sins because he died for the spirit to be poured out and our sins to be taken away. And so in the same way, when he commanded those jars to be filled with water, it's a picture of how we, the clay jars, because we are all like clay in his hands. We, the clay jars, are filled to the brim with water, his Holy Spirit. And when we are, we will overflow with good wine, fruit good fruit for all to drink from. And they will say, this is the best I've ever tasted. I've never had anything in this world that is like this taste that you have. What is it that is with this wine? What is it with this jar that is you? Why do you taste different? You see, my sisters, but you will only have that by the Holy Spirit, that promise that the resurrection brought us. And so I want to end this message with the following brothers and sisters. I know that I said a lot of things and. But repent of your sins, search your hearts, cleanse your homes from the leaven, the pride, take that leavened bread out during this feast of unleavened bread and make sure that when the feast of first fruits comes, you remember the gift that he has given you, the Holy Spirit, that gift of the resurrection. And remember that he gave, 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 and he expects you to give your life, give an offering financially, go and actually make a donation to somewhere, whether it's a, your favorite ministry, whether it's a orphanage, whether it's wherever he leads you to give, go and give into his kingdom so his kingdom can spread. That's what he calls us to do in this this time he's given us. So let's give back for what he's given us to prosper so his Holy Spirit can reach more people. And when I want to tell it, remind you of the story of when Jesus walked among us, there was a time where there was a funeral procession. We read about this in Luke 7 verse 12 onwards, where he came across this dead boy. And he healed and he raised the boy from the dead. And everyone were, was astounded at this because he was dead. He was dead. He was he was dead. And, and later he, of course, Jesus was able to be raised himself even from the dead. His conquering of the thing we call death. That is the most dreadful thing to any person if they don't have God. Right. Is this thing we call death. The fact that we are not going to be here forever in this form that we're going to have to pass away and go somewhere else after this. It's a scary thought, right? If you have no hope and salvation. And the thing is, though, is that the fact that he overcame that the most scary thing in this world, probably and where we can now say, death, where is your sting? Isn't that testimony that he can save us from anything that the plagues around us will be kept from us because he is in control. He is the one who has the power. He is the one who has salvation. He is the one who said, therefore, is your thing. You're overcome. And the one who said these things, Jesus Christ, our Messiah, is on our side. And that's probably perhaps the best news of it all, isn't it? 
that God is no longer against us because of our sin, but because our sin is placed upon him. And as far as the east is from the west to him, now he sees us clean. He's on our side and he says, I will fight for you. You need only watch. I will fight for you. So, brothers and sisters, rejoice in this word from the Lord. Give your best to him in this season. Make an offering of your life and perhaps even financial and let him rule in all aspects. I hope that this has blessed you. Father, Lord, we just pray right now, God, we thank you, God, that you say in your Psalms, no plague will come near your tent. In the name of Yeshua, I thank you that you bear us an eagle's wings. I thank you, Father, Lord, that you have given, given, given your son, your spirit. You've given us eternal life. You've given us everything, a list so long that I cannot count. Lord, I thank you, Lord, for the promises, Lord, that you give us that when we give ourselves, our lives and everything in it to you, that you give what, what you have for us. And in fact, Lord, you've given even before we did. Thank you for taking the first step. Lord, today we are going to say, Lord, we are taking a step towards you. Lord, you've made the first move and now we will move. Father, I just proclaim healing, supernatural protection and your blood on the doorposts of all who listen. I proclaim freedom, Lord, Lord, from all leaven, freedom from all religious spirits right now in the name of Yeshua, Lord. I come. I just speak freedom, Lord, from all um, uh, um, Lord, distraction, Lord, I just I just hear distraction, Lord, I just thank you for freedom from distraction and your people so they can be focused and see you in the name of Yeshua. I speak to sleepless nights. There's someone listening to the sound of my voice with that because of the fears going around. Lord, I command every spirit of fear to leave spirit of fear, leave every household listening now. Lord, I thank you for freedom. God, that you are the God of peace and we proclaim your peace to per, per, prevail in every house now in the name of Yeshua. Amen.